Hello, we're the Chrismans. Uh, I'm Sean, this is my wife Candy and my son Micah. We are reading Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, and who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison to those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. pausing in our series in the book of Acts, and we're beginning an Advent series this Sunday. And so we're going to make our way to the order of the two Testaments through the book of Isaiah. It's just been read to us, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 down through verse 9. While you're turning there, it gives us a little perspective to understand some of the dynamics associated with these verses. And this is one of four songs that Isaiah has penned. And this song begins with a messianic emphasis. Eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ's arrival in Bethlehem, here we find a promise delivered by Isaiah, perhaps arguably the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament. And what he has done for you and done for me is to be able to, with, with certain exclamation points attached to it, to understand that there's a mission, there's a focus, there's a purpose attached to this Messiah. And so he's going to be dubbed in this four-part series, the servant, my servant. And we're going to try to understand why it is that Isaiah has identified Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ, as the one that God the Father refers to as my servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. And this is the perspective that we bring as we're looking to our Lord together now in prayer. And so, Father, what we want to do is to explore your word together this morning, to understand what it is that you want to emphasize within our hearts, the issues you want to draw to our attention. It's been an extraordinarily unique year 
is allowed for people to pause and reflect upon what matters most. And from that, hopefully they have arrived at who matters most. And that's the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So Father, these moments are important. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was breakfast time in Colorado, and a group of men and I were sitting together, and we were talking about leadership. In fact, we were talking about a particular form of leadership known as servant leadership. In fact, the president of the Evangelical Free Church of America, former president, Paul Cedar, wrote a book on such a subject as that. One of the men said very shortly, he would love to have one of our friends come and join you. And Gary, and I asked who that was. He said, well, you'll see. Well, I recognized him as he came walking through the door. His picture had been found in many leadership journals throughout the years. Lawrence Sani. Lawrence Sani became the president of Navigators when Dawson Trotman passed away. Lawrence Sani oversaw the explosive growth of ministries through Navigators globally. Lawrence Sani oversaw so much of the counseling on the floors and on the fields after Billy Graham had offered his invitation and people began to come forward to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Lawrence Sani. And if there was anybody who exemplified the whole idea of servant leadership, that would be your man. And so he took his spot at the table and he had some questions for me and I was listening carefully as the dialogue was going back and forth and sharing some perspectives, some ideas that I had. And then one of the men, a businessman, turned to Lauren and he asked, uh, Lauren, how, how does one know when he has a servant attitude? Great question. And Lauren's response was, it's by how you act when you are treated like one. And I thought about Jesus Christ at that point when that statement was made. Because Jesus Christ is known as the servant of the Lord. And what I want to do with you in the midst of this four-part series in Advent is to be able to draw out some perspectives regarding this one that God the Father has identified as my servant. And so we're going to do that today in verses 1 down through verse 9. It's a song. It's divided into two particular stanzas, verse 1 through verse 4, stanza 1, verse 5 down through verse 9, stanza 2. Each stanza has what I will call a major theme attached to it, and in verses 1 through 4, the first theme that I want to draw out for us is that as you and I, as we consider Messiah this morning, the servant of the Lord, we know as Jesus Christ, we begin here by noting together the justice that he establishes for the nations. You'll notice that in the insert, what you and I find is that not once, not twice, three times in this first stanza, the word justice appears, and we've got to ask ourselves the basic question, but why? Let's begin to develop it. Notice how this begins. Behold. 
That is an extraordinary word in the Older Testament. It's meant to arrest the attention of the individual who's reading. Now, it's a visual word because the Israelites had fallen, become prey, so to speak, to false gods, visual false gods. And so Isaiah delivered the goods in verse 24 of the prior chapter when he would say, Behold, echoing what God the Father would say through him, You are nothing, God the Father is saying to the false gods of this world. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And again, right before chapter 42 kicks in, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. In other words, what God now is saying at this point is that anything which serves as a substitute for God and anyone who is prone to substitute for God, whether it be government, job, family, wealth, whatever, is living in a delusional state. They have a design for a false God that creates a delusion in their minds where they think that that can deliver the goods and help meet them at their point of need. Now, in this very unique time period that you and I find ourselves in, it's very possible that what people are trying to do is they're trying to design a plan for their future, but in the process, substituting for God, have brought themselves into a delusional state. Now, what God the Father is saying at this point through Isaiah, we've got to be able to bring the behold into their mindset in these confusing days and bring a new sense of certainty as to who truly is God. And so now, in chapter 42, verse 1, after having repeated the word behold to arrest their attention regarding the negatives, he now brings out the positive. And so in verse 1, he begins with this word, Behold, my servant. Notice that it says, my servant. Does not begin the servant. What does that tell you? What it tells you is that there's a personal relationship between the Godhead and this one known as the Messiah. Eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ's arrival on the scene, He's already being described by God the Father as my servant. And the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many, you and I are told in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Now, so notice at this point, there's a very strong relationship between the Godhead and this one being designated the Messiah. Behold my servant. Now what interests you and interests me is we look at probably, arguably, the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, is that he is camped on the idea that the Messiah is to be viewed by God as my servant, but 20 times in chapters 40 through 55, 53, it's in the singular, and 11 times in 54 through 66, it's in the plural. Why? In the foyer of our home, if you come walking in, there is an old, old clock. There's a pendulum there. Pendulum's meant to swing back and forth. 
What God the Father now is doing is that he's looking at the believing remnant of the Jews on one hand, saying, you are my servant, plural. On the other hand, he's looking at the representative of the remnant we know as Jesus Christ and saying, you are my servant, singular. So in these chapters, what he does is he keeps moving back and forth between the singular and the plural, sometimes talking about the believing remnant, other times talking about the representative of that remnant, Jesus Christ. So you've got to always be looking, is he talking singular, is he talking plural? But at the same time, understanding he's talking about our responsibility, if we know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, to serve humanity by being God's servants, representing the cause of Jesus Christ, sharing the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. No. Behold, my servant, you get a sense here of the responsibility and the duty that's awaiting him. He couples that phrase, my servant, whom I uphold, with the next phrase, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Which means that in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there was a covenantal relationship where it was designated as to who was going to enter into this world to die on that cross to save us from our sins. And the second member of the Trinity was designated as such. He is my servant. He is my chosen one. But notice the movement, the pendulum, back and forth from singular to plural, singular to plural. Tevier, filler on the roof. He's been looking very carefully at the persecutions of the Jewish people. And in one of those moments of exasperation as he's looking to God, he looks up into the heavens and says, I know, I know, we are your chosen people. But once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else But you never hear Jesus saying that. He entered into that covenantal relationship. He would be designated my servant. He would be designated my chosen one. In whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. And now you and I begin to think, haven't we spotted this idea somewhere in the Newer Testament? You're onto something. Because in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, that great scene where Jesus Christ is about to be baptized. You and I are told, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold. Did you capture that? Matthew uses the word behold. Visual word communicating a verbal expression. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And here you and I find God saying through Isaiah, I have put my Spirit upon him. He is the one in whom my soul delights, the one upon whom received the Spirit.
Now, he's about to give him responsibility, isn't he? He's about to bring forth something that God the Father has already established for him. Not once, not twice, three times now, what you and I are going to find here is that the word justice is about to unfold. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Ponder that word. You and I have been listening to this word throughout this 2020 experience. We've heard of social justice. We've heard about economic justice. We have heard now in the Senate runoff in Georgia, which will be taking place in January, a new candidate who's arguing for reproductive justice, in other words, arguing for abortion on demand. Somebody's going to have to define the weird justice. It is the Christian community throughout this nation and beyond that is going to have to help people to re-understand, and I use that word intentionally, to re-understand what the significance, what the meaning is of this particular word that's being unpacked in, uh, within the realm of the scriptures. The Hebrew word here for justice, mishpat, carries with the idea of instruction in judgment or going the right way. The right way. When I head out of my office later and I begin to make my way back home, I'll probably go through the city. And as I do so, I head down around by the lake. And as I come down the road leading to my house, there is a particular building with a sign in front of it. And the sign reads, The Right Way. They've got it. This is the idea here of what is being communicated. In other words, what this servant, you and I know as Jesus Christ, is doing, he is offering us the right way. Mishpat. Justice. In other words, the word justice here is not a governmental word. The word justice here is not a judicial word. The word justice here is really an evangelistic word. Full-spectrum discipleship. Leading people to Christ who will lead people to Christ who will lead people to Christ. Entering into communicating the right way. That is why Jesus then was able to say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Mishpat. He's bringing that kind of justice the right way into the vocabulary of the people as he walked the soil of Palestine during those days. And he did so with the endowment of the Holy Spirit who was equipping him to accomplish this task. He does it for the remnant so the remnant can reach the world with the gospel of Jesus. Norman Schwarzkopf describes his experience West Point. When I began as a plebe, duty, honor, country, for me it was just a model that I'd heard before. But by the time I left, those values had become fixated within my heart. It was tr a tremendous liberation. For you see, the army, with its emphasis on rank and medals and efficiency reports, is the easiest institution in the world in which to get consumed with ambition. 
Some officials, some officers spent all their time carrying favor, worrying about the next promotion. It's a miserable way to live, he wrote. But West Point, West Point saved me from that by instilling the idea of service above self. To do my duty for my country, even if it brought no gain at all, it gave me far more than a military career. It gave me my calling. Now, for Jesus Christ, this was his calling. And his calling was to provide a service for the good of humanity. And he understood the idea of duty and honor and the likes in relationship to God the Father, because I came to do the will of the Father, is what Jesus Christ uttered as he taught the masses. Mishpat, the right way, pointing people now to God the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He will bring forth mishpat, justice. But now what I want you to see here is that that is not for self only. It's for the nations. This is global. This is international. This is highly involved in discipleship. And as Jesus Christ eventually would, would invest himself, you see, in his followers, what you and I found was that in the book of Acts, God had promised, Jesus Christ had established it. But when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and of the earth. This is the very idea being communicated by Mishpat, right way, justice. Verse 1, to the nations. I say, Gary, are you ever going to get out of verse 1? Yeah, here we are. We're up to verse 2. Notice this. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. In other words, what he's saying at this point is that I'm not here for self-advertisement. What I want to do is to bring a true sense of the magnificence of the glory of God the right way. No more substitutes. So Jesus Christ now would be on mission. And this was being penned eight centuries prior. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, there's extraordinary humility tied into this one Messiah known as God's servant. Over 4,000 books have been written about Abraham Lincoln. But when the Dictionary of Congress compiler asked Lincoln to contribute an autobiography, roughly 50 words, here's what Lincoln offered. Born February 12th, 1809, in Hawden County, Kentucky. Education, defective. Profession, lawyer. Postmaster at very small office. Four times a member of the Illinois legislature. Member 
of the lower house of Congress. Period. He didn't even refer to himself as president. Humility. It's humility that's found in this work of Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, watch what unfolds here. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He's not into self-marketing. Make it heard in the street. There's a quietness about him. If any of my family members are watching right now, live stream, you might recall my mother, when she wanted to gain attention of the people around the table, she'd lower her voice. She become very quiet, and all of a sudden, my brothers, my sisters, they began to lower their voices. It got quiet, and then she'd speak, and they would listen. They would. I wouldn't. They would, you see. And she'd remind me of that. But you see, this individual here will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, but as he lowers his voice... He's got the attention of the people. Make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Now you and I are trafficking among people right now that feel bruised. What it says here, a bruised reed he will not break. You might get bruised. You won't get broken. If you know Messiah Jesus. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. And now for the second time in this Mishpat series. Once again he delivers the goods. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The right way. The right manner of worshiping God. The truth of what salvation is all about. Now you're up to verse 4. He will not grow faint or discouraged. Now picture, if you will, Messiah who is going to the cross. Now there was so much in the floggings prior to the crucifixion and the likes. Yet we find that he had the capacity still to carry his cross as far as possible until it was deemed necessary by God the Father to have somebody else step in and finish off. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice, mishpat, for the third time again. But where? This is global outreach. This is missions. This is taking the technology of today now and communicating it throughout the lands of the face of the earth. And the coastlands wait for this law. 
some of the translations here, the islands. In other words, the remote places. They wait. Now, what God is doing at this point is he's reminding you and he's reminding me that the believer, the one who's put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, doesn't have a passive approach to God, but rather a proactive approach with God. For the word wait here in the Hebrew carries with it the idea of expectant waiting. There is an expectation that God is going to break in and put all things back together again. That's then what this one is doing. Not once, not twice, three times with his mishpat. He is offering people to understand the right way to God the Father. It will be through this Messiah, the one God the Father has designated, my servant, that even the coastlands, even the most remote places of the earth are going to be able to embrace this. And now they are waiting, in this case, eight centuries before, expectantly for this story that you and I know is, is chronicled in the gospel account. The story of Bethlehem and Jesus' birth. And the coastlands await for this law. Hebrew word, Torah carries with the sense of directional teaching, which naturally links back then to mishpat, justice, right way. See how this fits together? So now, not once, not twice, three times in your first stanza, what you will find is that there is this emphasis upon justice. And the common theme in all this is that it is meant for the nations, nations in the plural. So now here are the Jews at this point. They're feeling tremendous burdens and challenges as they are awaiting the potential overrun of their land. Assyrians, later Babylonians. And he's saying, I still want you to look outward beyond yourselves and understand your mission, why you're here. Likewise, if you feel overrun in 2020, If you're weighed down, you're bruised, you're not broken, understand that you've got something in terms of an outward force that's got to be at the forefront as you're projecting outwardly the good news of Messiah coming into Bethlehem to die on Calvary the right way. So there's your first stanza. We've dubbed it this, the justice that he establishes for the nations. And now the people who are going to impact the culture the most are the people that can control the vocabulary, the words of the culture. So let's say in a Senate runoff where reproductive justice is now being argued for. And we've heard about social justice and we've heard about economic justice and global justice and so on. Who defines justice? If the Christians seize the moment and begin to define the terms, we can reintroduce the right way into the vocabulary of the culture, getting people once again to engage with who matters most as they think seriously about what matters most. Salvation through Jesus Christ alone. There's your first stanza. But now your second stanza. We're going to label this one. Not only the justice that he establishes for the nations in 1 through 4, but secondly, the light he brings to the nations in 5 through 7. Now look at this. Just as he used not once, twice, three times the word justice in the first stanza, he uses not once, not twice, three times 
the title, The Lord. In the second stanza, what an incredible musical composition you've got unfolding in front of your very eyes at this point. Thus says God, El, in the Hebrew, the Lord. Notice it's capitalized. Yahweh, the covenantal relational name for God. And now notice how effectively Isaiah is able to communicate even poetically and musically at this point. He uses four significant words or phrases, if you will, to be able to communicate God's creative work all within one verse. Thus says God the Father the Lord who created the heavens, who who stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. Why the fourfold emphasis upon creation? If God can create something out of nothing, again, in this COVID era, he can create something good out of something bad. He moves then from creation to care. From the creation of this world to the care of the people through this one we know as Messiah. So he breaks in once again with his wording. I am the Lord. Doesn't want us to miss it. Poetically, musically, he stresses it. And he goes on to say, I have called you in righteousness, as he says now to the one who is being established as being Messiah. And furthermore, he goes on at this point to say, I will give you a covenant for the people. This is global. What it means now is that he is collecting the believing Jews, collecting the believing Gentiles into one believing community, one people of God before God, and then saying, a light for the nations. Now, in a few weeks, the Sunday right after Christmas, when John is speaking, he'll be speaking from Luke chapter 2. Now, look very carefully at what Simeon said with Jesus as he was about to bless this one in the arms of Mary took him up in his arms, blessed God, said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, stew Gentiles, Verse 32. Link it now to what you're reading here in Isaiah 42. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He's already thinking full spectrum discipleship. Jew and Gentile. I will give you in Isaiah 42 verse 8 a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. 
thinking globally. And now you take the first stanza that talks about the people. You take the second stanza that talks about the nations. You pull it all together. He's really talking about the evangelistic, the discipleship movement that's flowing through the work of the Messiah at this point to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison to those who sit in darkness. E. Stanley Jones, late missionary. He once wrote about a unique kind of mirror that was employed by Japanese Christians when, as he put it, were forbidden by the government to follow Christ. Without churches, the people had cleverly devised mirrors that were used in family worship services when they could not congregate together. He went on to write these words. When the sunlight was permitted to fall on the mirror, the reflection on the ceiling was that of the Savior hanging on a cross within a circle of light. When a knock came to the door, the mirror was quickly pulled aside out of the sun's rays. I'll give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sits, from the prison those who sit in darkness, And now, for the third time, he offers the great I am the Lord statement. I am the Lord. That is my name, Yahweh. My glory I give to no other to refute all the substitutes that have been noted in the prior chapter, nor my praise to carved idols, and notice how he ends just as he begins. How did he begin? Behold. How does he end? Behold. With triplicate justice in the first stanza, triplicate I am the Lord, second stanza, common theme, nations, people, pulling it all together. He begins with behold, he ends with behold, Behold, the former things have come to pass. You take a deep breath, new creation people. New things, I now declare. New song being put in your heart. New heavens, new earth awaiting us. Before they spring forth, eight centuries before, I tell you of them. What a musical composition. As Lauren Sani is sitting there, breakfast in Colorado. How do you know when one has a servant attitude? Response by how you act when you're treated like one. And the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's stand together.
Father, we're thanking you now. First service, second service, live stream, YouTube viewings through the week. We're asking that in a very powerful way that people begin to grasp the significance of what's here. You are the God that controls time. If eight centuries prior you can make such statements and we can look into your word and throughout history and see such fulfillment, you can handle 2020. You can handle Advent. And you can meet the needs of our lives. You've shown us the right way. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.